This episode of Run As Radio is sponsored by Datadog, a monitoring and analytics platform for cloud-scale infrastructure and applications. With automated monitoring, distributed tracing, and now logging, Datadog provides deep end-to-end visibility into the health and performance of modern applications. Build rich dashboards, set alerts to identify anomalies, and collaborate with your team to troubleshoot and fix issues fast. See it for yourself. Start a 14-day free trial today, and Datadog will send you a free t-shirt. Get started at dd.runasradio.com. From runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 581, Talking DevOps to Devs with guest Tim Warner, recorded Monday, February 26th, 2018. Run As Radio is produced each week by Pwop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell, and thanks for listening to Run As Radio. My guest today is Tim Warner, who's a Microsoft MVP in the cloud and data center management area and a full-time trainer for Pluralsight. Tim's work is in many varieties of IT since he entered the field full-time in 1997, and his current areas of focus are Microsoft Azure, cross-platform PowerShell, and open-source technologies, especially and including Linux. And Tim and his family live in Nashville, Tennessee, where I hear the weather is not cooperating. We've been swinging 40-plus degrees each day. Wow. No snow. We were supposed to get an inch last night, but it wreaks havoc on everybody's immune system, as you could yeah, expect. I bet it does. Hey, before we go tearing off into the subject, I want to read this comment from uh, show 572, which is one I did with Robert Sewell. We talked about PowerShell for SQL Server, the DBA tool set. And you know you know, you hit a good show when you just get a flurry of comments on it. Yeah. And this one got several right uh, almost immediately in this particular comments from Eric Anderson, who said, talk about great timing. We are moving to having our developers have local copies of databases at work, and it sounds like DBA tools will be a great way to help get this project off the ground. Thank you both for a great show. And, you know, we, I know you and I are going to talk about working with developers in a DevOps cycle. And yeah. I've always been frustrated with how hard it is to administer databases in that sort of continuous integration mindset, in that self-service mindset. So getting good PowerShell tours for a SQL Server, I think, is huge. Mm -hmm. I agree. PowerShell everywhere. Yeah. PowerShell all the things. (laughs) The Exchange Server product group and SQL Server product group, I think those were the two earliest adopters of PowerShell. Yeah. I I mean, certainly Exchange, but that was because PowerShell made it. Active Directory so much easier to manage, and you could not deal with Exchange without dealing with Active Directory. Right. The, the problem with the SQL Server team is that they always had the DML, right? They always had their own manipulation yeah. languages, so they really weren't incented the same way. Mm-hmm. And so it always felt to me like it was sort of a halfway implementation. Some stuff worked, some stuff didn't. It didn't really become the underpinnings. I mean, you think about what the IIS team did. They literally Mm -hmm. rewrote their administrator to just be a wrapper over PowerShell commands. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, you put it in the center pipeline like that. That's pretty honest. It's pretty straightforward. 
But what I liked about the DBA tools, obviously open source, a different approach to the problem, but their Mm -hmm. original focus was more on handling migrations that you were able to build this repeatable script to move Mm -hmm. from version to version or machine to machine and so forth. So, and then they grew into more. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Eric, thank you so much for your comment. Obviously stimulated some conversation between Tim and I and uh, run as radio mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a run as radio mug, Write a comment on the website at runasradio.com or via any of the social media. Every show of Run As is published on LinkedIn, Google Plus, and Facebook. You can friend and like us there. And if you comment on any of those shows and I read it on our later recorded show, I'll send you a mug. All right, my friend. How are you? Things are good? Yeah, everything is booming along in 2018. Yeah. There's never a shortage of work to do. No. (laughs) My family and I are preparing to take our first European vacation, the National Lampoon European Vacation Warner Edition. You're going to be that guy, huh? (laughs) (laughs) The Tennesseans go to Europe. Yeah, it'll be cool. I'm speaking at Takarama in uh, Antwerp, Belgium. Oh, yes. And it's a perfect excuse to bring Sue and Zoe along. So we're going to paint Europe. And Antwerp is such a historic city and and Belgium as a whole. Great fun. I'm sure you'll enjoy yourself. Thank you. You know, we had the DevOps conversation a lot. And I've seen some organizations where that approach to a practice that cycles faster and is better instrumented and so forth is driven by development, that it comes from a continuous integration path mm-hmm. more than anything else. And they sort of bump up against operations saying, hey, we want to be able to deploy faster. And there's lots of conversation there, shall we say, mm-hmm. over you know actually making things manageable. Yep. But I'm fascinated to talk to you around the idea of how operations folks can talk to development, both from their reaction to, we want to do continuous integration, hey, can we deploy several times a day, mm-hmm. versus dev is happy with the way they're doing things and operations sees that we could gain some efficiencies. Yeah, a couple trends come to my mind. One is, I was thinking about this earlier today, I believe that when virtualization, server virtualization started really taking off whenever that was, mm-hmm. in the early 2000s, yeah. that put a lot of operations people into having to consider administrative automation because, you know, suddenly the servers, the physical servers that they're taking care of are now exponentially growing outward. And the notion of doing the same administrative tasks over and over again becomes untenable. Yeah, it's funny how virtualization reduced the number of servers we had and increased the number of services or VMs that we had. It it became an explosion, really. Yeah, isn't that something? And what I've seen trend-wise, a few things, is one, ops people, I don't want to speak too generally here, but that has been my focus professionally over the last 20 years. Is In general, I see a lot of ops people getting myopic, I guess, for lack of a better, better term, where mm-hmm. their heads are down, focusing on just the availability of their servers and just making sure that the the backups are working. All those are legitimate and important tasks, but they're missing the bigger picture of the services that the business is delivering. And it's the services that represents, in my experience, that nexus or connection point with the development group. And like you said, when developers are getting into agile project management and the notion of committing to source multiple times a day Mm -hmm. and accelerating their release cycle, I see a lot of resistance from the operations people who are very much mode one in terms of if it, if it first of all, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. <laughs> and number two, 
Just how dare you move so quickly? Stability is our watchword. In some ways, it reminds me of this push-pull between ops and dev is the, a difference between the relational model in databases to no SQL. You know, relational, right. it's all about consistency, consistency, consistency. And no SQL, you're talking about scale and speed and sacrificing a little bit of consistency. Sure, store everything as is. Yeah. And, you know, we'll kind of clean up the mess afterwards. And, you know, we were also finding on the data side, it's like the problem when you have a really strict model like that is it impairs your ability to to be flexible. Yeah. But, you know, I... I've spent enough time as an ops guy, and I, when I talk to devs about this, it's like, look, you guys have been shipping code every 16 weeks, and each time we deploy it, it's a catastrophe. <laughs> we spend days trying to get mm-hmm. it back up. Sometimes we roll back, sometimes we hammer through it. Like, why do you think I want a catastrophe every day? Right. Yeah, this speaks to the fact that DevOps is as much about interpersonal communication and professional teamwork as it is tool and technologies. Another trend I've seen on the dev side is either the devs just assume that the infrastructure side is in place, is working, and is compatible with their code. And exactly what you said, they'll push a release out into the production environment without necessarily notifying the ops people and having them do you know their QA testing and assurance testing and things break. And then the other thing I've seen is where you know the shadow IT thing happens where devs get so frustrated with the bureaucracy, let's say, right. of asking, you know, could you spin us up a pod of VMs? Could you do this? That they'll just start doing their own infrastructure on their side. In the cloud. It, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Nowadays, hybrid or in the cloud yeah. altogether. I've seen that. And that shadow IT is going to make a business's compliance officers very upset. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I think I've told this story before, but I'll leave all the company names out to protect the guilty. Mm-hmm. But I got asked to write up a white paper around a particular department in a large organization that had beaten all of its software goals by a long way. And they were using these very agile practices. And they were rolling out changes on a routine basis and so forth. And when I went and studied, I realized, hey, you know, these guys are applying everything to AWS. Mm-hmm. They'd simply bypassed IT and nobody had a right. clue. Mm-hmm. And were they compliant? No, they really weren't. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. you know, suddenly this white paper celebration turns into a holy cow, are we ever vulnerable? We better get a good look at what's going on here. Yes. But... I also thought it was a statement to operations. Imagine you're that much of an obstacle that they're going to violate potentially laws to try and be productive. we've, Mm -hmm. We've got to serve these people. Yes. Yeah, you're right. And so to circle back on, on what my first comment was, virtualization and the push or the need that ops people have now for administrative automation, of course, they're going to fall right into the lap of PowerShell if they're working in a Windows shop. And right. I dare say now with PS Core and PS6, they could use it for Linux and or Windows. Mm-hmm. But that's a great entree for them to start working across that bridge to work more intimately with development. I mean, Microsoft is not going to stop their fast release cycle. No. And dev, dev shops that have invested the time, money, resources to get agile and start to implement the CI, CD stuff on their side, they're not going to slow down. So the truth of the matter is, if you're not happy with that trend, either you might want to consider another career or 
go to a place that is far behind the times with their <laughs> operations and development. <laughs> but I, I also think, you know, it helps that an organization as big as Microsoft is producing these practices and building their own software that way because it's just a validation. If this big mm-hmm. beast can do it, why can't mm-hmm. you? Yeah, and the fact that they're doing that with Windows, mm-hmm. the twice-yearly major update thing they have going with Windows Client and Windows Server, it boggles my mind to think of all the different feature groups merging their code ultimately right. into this single huge code base. And they're doing that in a pretty darn fast fashion. I mean, you and I both date back far enough to where you know we would expect a major OS update every three years sure. or so, right? Yeah, maybe one service pack a year. Yeah. So, I mean, Microsoft is certainly eating their own dog food. Yeah. And living the life they're, they're building tools for. Right. Yes, exactly right. Visual Studio Team Services is a good example mm-hmm. of a platform that can take care of just about all of this. The source code control, building integration pipelines, testing, release pipelines. It's all right there in the product as a SaaS service. Right. Yeah. It's very it's very impressive. So, mm-hmm. I want to walk through both scenarios, Mm -hmm. but I guess the first one, I think the most likely one is, all right, Dev's coming at us with this, we'd like to go faster. Mm -hmm. What does IT need to know and how do they facilitate without killing themselves? Right. Well, um, as I mentioned, they're going to need to understand the basics. Do they Mm -hmm. need to be a C-sharp developer? No, not necessarily. But they need to understand the basics of the software development lifecycle, and they need to understand their services, the software that their company builds, for instance, at a deeper level than they are used to. Right. And that's that's the whole soft skills, maybe pairing ops people and developers for an afternoon for like pair work where they can just trade knowledge. But from a rubber meets the road standpoint, assuming that the ops person is gotten into administrative scripting and PowerShell, it seems to me, and a lot of these suggestions I have in my notes came from people on Twitter. I did a little hive mind exercise a couple days ago and got some good feedback. And one person, Nick Getchell, said, configuration management with a side of source control. And that was nice. In other words, think about your configuration management, whatever you're doing right now, and think about how you can define those policies in code, say PowerShell or Perl or whatever, and commit those files, store them in a Git repository. And that provides a really good learning platform, and it certainly improves the operation side of the business as well. I like that idea that one of the first mm-hmm. skills IT should work on is getting used to using source control for their own thing. Yeah. Because it's not, I mean, certainly the configuration as code type scripts, how I generate VMs, how I, mm-hmm. how I populate mm-hmm. and so forth. Having those in source control so that you know that the, how the version changed and who did it, Right. that's huge. Yeah. But it's the pipeline for PowerShell. More and more organizations I'm talking to now where old IT guys are used to having a three and a half inch floppy disk or mm-hmm. these days a USB mm-hmm. key with their scripts on it. Yep. And they're the only ones that run them. They're like their special toolkit. But this idea that a group of people would share scripts, that's fairly out there for some folks. It is. And nowadays, you know, even de- experienced developers will say that, that they'll do a quick stack overflow search, copy, paste, done. <laughs> right. You know, nowadays, ops people will do that, but they may be copying from a gist, a, a GitHub gist or gist. I've never known how to pronounce that. But why not, like you said, take ownership of the code and curate it over time? I think. 
from what I've seen in my consulting work, ops people tend to go into the source control thing thinking, grumbling, well, I need to understand how this works so I can work better with development and support them better. But then when they do need to do a critical rollback and they realize they would have been in trouble if they didn't have it in source control, then it really locks in and they're like, oh, right, I see. My colleague stepped all over my code, but I can get it back. I can do a diff and compare. We Mm -hmm. can discuss it because we have a full record of what's happened with this code. Yeah, that's the moment. The moment a script you've always Mm -hmm. trusted breaks and you're trying to figure Mm -hmm. out how it broke. Yep. Yeah. Yep. But I also think this rollback mentality just, I think it matters to ops more than it matters to development. But this, if you guys want to move quickly, I want to know we can get back to a known reliable state. Mm-hmm. Yep. Even if you don't do it, because funny is, as I've seen organizations get stronger in their DevOps practice and comfortable with iteration, we don't roll back. We roll forward. We can fix quickly and yeah. keep moving. But mm-hmm. I, I do think it's a basic requirement for the psyche of operations to know we know how to get back to a known reliable state. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just like with their data backups, with their SQL server Mm -hmm. backups, a good backup is only as good as its ability to be successfully restored. Absolutely. I think you're exactly right, Tim. It's that metaphor precisely. Yeah. And Tim, give me one moment to share this very important message. This episode of Run As Radio is brought to you by the Humanitarian Toolbox. Humanitarian Toolbox builds open-source software for disaster relief organizations. One of the leading projects, called Already, focuses on getting volunteers into the right place at the right time using cloud and mobile technology. HTBox builds and operates this and other applications on behalf of a variety of disaster response organizations, and they need your help. Go to htbox.org for more information or to make a tax-deductible donation. HTBox is a 501c3 U.S. registered charity. And we're back. It's Richard Campbell here on Run As Radio with my friend Tim Warner. We're talking about operations folks embracing DevOps and working with developers, especially in those early stages. And I really appreciate the sentiment about that I only know my backups work when I successfully restore. I only trust our deployment practices when we can roll back to a previous version. Yes. And to extend upon this pattern, this pattern recipe, for lack of a better term, for an IT person to get more comfortable with DevOps mindset, we started with identifying config management steps and storing the source and source control. Mm -hmm. And now I'd like to add linting, unit testing, refactoring. That's a logical next step, it seems to me. You know, the PowerShell script analyzer can identify security issues in your code and I'm a big fan of Tobias is um, ISE steroids add-in. I'm still using ISE. Um, Don Jones is constantly saying, stop using ISE and start using VS Code, but I'm not there yet. Interesting. And because Tobias has a great resharper type refactoring engine built into ISE steroids. But, and then Pester, of course, and developing the habit of writing unit tests for all of your functions. This is going to go a long way. Again, it's one of those things that there's the annoying learning curve, but once the operations person starts to see the magic of this, Mm -hmm. that they've got the satisfaction of knowing when they commit a change that it's past testing, so there's not going to be a breakage somewhere else in the code. This helps them improve their work, improve their infrastructure. And also gives them a much deeper insight into what the developers are doing on their side. Because, of course, the developer is probably using 
JetBrains ReSharper and his or her own visual studio installation, you know? For sure. And you've avoided those tools, you know, as an ops person for a long time. You didn't really, oh, yeah. I don't really want to learn those things, but there's some yeah. point where you just have to embrace some of it. And it helps that you want it. Right. That you get to a point where you're like, ah, oh, this is actually the easiest way to solve this problem. Yeah, exactly. And so given that foundation, then I would say that the operations person's in a good spot to understand and embrace a continuous integration, continuous delivery pipeline. Right. And if they're a Microsoft shop, they probably have access to a Visual Studio Team Services site. Almost certainly, yeah. And they can see that it's almost a turnkey process to start to do automated testing and compilation and release. Do you think that this QA role now sort of changes into development owns some of it, IT owns some of it? Yeah, that, that's a good question indeed, because ideally, of course, you have dedicated quality assurance personnel. Mm -hmm. And of course, if you're doing a lot of levels of code checking, code analysis, and testing in the code, that might reduce the need for dedicated people so much. But right. yeah, I, th I would see it as a shared responsibility. You definitely see other viewpoints on this too, that ultimately the person writing the code is responsible for its testing and validation and repair, mm -hmm. you know, so mm -hmm. I'm seeing it's certainly there's plenty of organizations that still have QA, but we're also seeing rapidly iterating teams where that overall responsibility is super important. But operations obviously has a role to play in that. If there's one thing we haven't talked about yet, it's got to be the instrumentation side. It's catching those right. errors that mm -hmm. occur in production and feeding them back to development as quickly as possible. That's exactly right. Yep. And that was the last piece of the little pyramid I mm -hmm. put together. And the great Steve Morosky gave that suggestion, oh, yes. monitoring and app telemetry. Because like you said, the ops person, if there's a failure in source code, that he or she probably doesn't understand that domain-specific sure. language, so they can't fix it. But if they understand the need, if they understand the feeling, <laughs> yeah. they understand what's behind the scene, they're going to be much more effective, it seems to me, in tweaking the pipeline to get the feedback loop as short as possible back to the developer who needs to address the issue. And I definitely like automation around that for two reasons. Yeah. One is it becomes less painful for IT, but also I found that handwritten bug reports get criticized in a very different way than automatically generated ones. Yeah. There is no ad hominem attack in a yeah. generated bug report. We're all on the same side of it. We're staring at the machine going, why did it do that? As opposed to mm -hmm. when you diligently, like I've done the Saturday struggling right. to keep the website up thing. And then mm -hmm. I've spent a lot of time writing really detailed reports on how we analyzed the problem, how we kept going, areas we thought were and so forth. And they don't look at the issue so much as they question whether you wrote it upright. Yeah. <laughs> and in some ways having less tidy but automated bug reports just suck the air out of that so that we really focus on what do we do to stop that error from occurring? Why does it keep spitting out? Yeah, that's an observation that seems to me is born out of experience. That's a good one. Blood, just blood. <laughs> yeah, really, no doubt. And, you know, to that point of addressing the communication, the whole soft side mm -hmm. of DevOps, the biggest suggestion I've gotten from the hive mind is an audio book that I just started listening to, but it was published originally as a book. It's called The Phoenix Project. Love it. By Gene Kim, mm -hmm. Kevin Baer, and George Spafford. It takes a novel approach, literally and figuratively. It's a novel book. Yep. You know, 
and it goes through a company's implementation of DevOps. Are you familiar with that book, Richard? I, I have read that book. We've had Gene on the show to talk about it at times. Cool. Wow. The one thing I've said about the book occasionally, which makes Gene laugh, is like, don't read it for the love story. Right. right. <laughs> because it is a sort of fictionalized account, right? Yeah. You, you read it for the thinking, the mindset that led to success. It's super relatable is in those early stages of the book to feel that that downward spiral of despair of yeah. you need to get out features faster, but every feature creates more bugs and like we're never going to recover this and we're running out of money. It's like your real response is dust off my resume. I got to get the heck out of here. Mm -hmm. To dig back from that to the company succeeding in a meaningful way. I think it's very powerful. And it, it's been around a few years now. It's a lovely book. Yeah. And they now have the, the audiobook version of that. And they have a new piece that's sort of after the Phoenix Project, which is a, a bunch of other hours of, of uh, audio that you can listen to. Thanks for the heads up. I will look on your show index, and I'm going to listen to that Jane Kim interview right after we're finished, as a matter of fact. Well, absolutely. Well, uh, I have the good fortune to be able to generally convince Mr. Kim to come on my show almost once a year. That's great. So, <laughs> Lucky for me, really. He's a busy, yes. busy guy. But uh, yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, you talk about someone who decided to take the DevOps movement on head on and mm -hmm. just be sort of the, his IT revolution site is kind of a focal point for a lot of this. Yeah, very challenging stuff. Do you have any preferred instrumentation packages? How do you like to, to do your automated reporting and feedback? For me, I've been doing almost well. All of my consulting work mm -hmm. and any even my plural site training work has been in Azure. Right. So Azure App Insights is your baby, right? Yeah. And as far as monitoring and telemetry, there's this whole Azure Log Analytics platform that's this huge data warehouse that you can have <laughs> any and all of your services funnel their data into. Nice. And then use this SQL PowerShell-ish like query language to pull data out. And there's build pipeline tools in Azure. One thing I often say is that one reason why I know I found my home in the Azure ecosystem is that there are so many tools to play with, I'll never get bored. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. It, and it's interesting to just think through the different kinds of telemetry you need here. I mean, I mentioned right off the bat, it's like, crashes in production, getting those error messages back mm -hmm. as, as work mm -hmm. items right away because they're, even if we've recovered some way, it's like I prefer that not, that not to happen anymore. But I've also seen in my own App Insights reports from Azure saying, you know, you yeah. really need an index over here or these mm -hmm. pages are mm -hmm. performing slower over time. There's a lot of analysis going on by Microsoft's own tech on your behalf, making suggestions. That's perfectly stated. They're machine learning, they're predictive analytics. I mean, they have such a huge data corpus to pull from. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing the degree to which they can give you suggestions for improving performance, security, reducing your spend. It's lovely. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how hard Azure works to have you spend less. <laughs> <laughs> right. They, they do push pretty hard on that. Some of them, my consulting clients express, at least initially, a little skepticism saying, it's not in Microsoft's best interest to try to give me advice on spending less. Yeah. What's the catch here? And I have some, you know, being an MVP, I have some good interaction with the teams. Mm -hmm. And I can say with a straight face, there is no ulterior motive. They really do want to help you 
spend less. Because really, from a business perspective, if you're happy with your spend, you're going to keep using the products. And, and ultimately, you will buy more too. Yeah, of course. That you and I, both MVPs, like we both had this opportunity mm-hmm. to talk fairly high up the senior ladder. Mm-hmm. One of the things mm-hmm. they're definitely afraid of is that you've a misconfigured site consumes a huge amount of dollars and it makes you run away right. from the product stack. Yeah. They want you to be lean and mean and efficient. Mm-hmm. And so why wouldn't they suggest that? Because if it works that way, you get more and more value. You will actually buy more, but only from the basis yeah. of getting more value from it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, you know, give Microsoft credit. They're betting the company on this stuff. Yep, they are. This is now their cash cow. This is how they make a living. So they're very serious about doing a good job. To the point where at least last time I read a news report, something in the neighborhood of 40% of the virtual machines running in Azure are running a Linux distribution. Yes. And that number seems to be going up, which is interesting to me. Because now that you have this bill arriving every month, like from an operations perspective, if you can get the hand on that bill, you could literally start doing math at the level of cost per transaction mm-hmm. and suddenly comparing different instances. Like, what if I do this as an Ubuntu instance instead of as a, yeah. as a wind server instance? I can consume less CPU, less, you know, a, a smaller VM in place. You know what the dollar value that is now. And you project that over a year, like, you can see some pretty serious ROI calculations around all of these things recognizing the capital investment of understanding how to maintain that new configuration and so forth. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. I have always been good as an IT guy at calculating ROI and coming at my business managers with dollars and cents. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you have a lot of power when you speak their language that way. Absolutely. And the reporting that you can get out of Azure includes a lot of pretty pictures. Mm -hmm. Some would prefer a really dense spreadsheet. I guess it all depends on the individual. Well, you know, (laughs) some IT groups report up through the CFO, some reports up through Mm -hmm. the CIO. Mm -hmm. I always hit CFO guys with spreadsheets. They're happiest that way. You know, and when they can see that if we spend a little money over here, we make more money over there or spend a little money here, we save more money over there. If you've gone to that trouble, to, to understand the math, then uh, you're going you're gonna to get more play. You're going to get an opportunity to try more things, to do some experiments, and to get feedback. I think the cloud's ability to be instrumented for us to get a monthly bill, as opposed to that two or three or four year investment cycle, which is so much harder mm-hmm. to measure, yeah. it makes it really compelling to do that. Mm-hmm. And certainly, you know, you're rounding out the DevOps story when you think beyond developers and operations. Yes. Business matters. Security matters. The customer Mm -hmm. matters. All Mm -hmm. of those people play into this cycle. And the more we can communicate with them and understand them, the better off we are. Agreed. Well, sir, uh, great conversation. Where can people learn more about you and where are you going to be next? What's in your inbox? Let's see here. Well, people can connect with me on Twitter. My handle is techtrainertim. Mm Mm-hmm. My website is techtrainertim.com, easy to remember. You can go to pluralsite.com where I teach and look me up there. I've got a whole boatload of courses. All of my recent ones just about are in Azure. And I think those are the major points. From either of those other sites, you could reach me on LinkedIn. You know, I'm around. You're not hard to find. Yeah, I'm not hard to find. Not doing as many conferences this year, doing more user groups, but... My European friends, I look forward to seeing you at Techorama in May and in Belgium. Awesome. Yes, sir. Tim Warner, thanks so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thank you. And we'll talk to you next time on Run As Radio. 